When expectant parents are awaiting the birth of a child, especially their first child, they try to make sure they've thought of every detail. They plan well in advance where the baby is going to be born. They get the nursery ready, choosing just the right colors and crib and blankets and toys. They do everything they can to avoid surprises because they want to know ahead of time exactly how all of this is going to play out. Now, I don't like when my plans get messed up. I'm a planner and I don't feel like I've done the job unless I can carry those plans out. So when Sandy and I were expecting our first child, I was terrified of the whole thing right, right off the bat. I had never held a baby in my life. Uh, I didn't know what to expect except that I was in a lot of trouble. And so I mapped everything out. We had everything planned. Even our next door neighbor at the time, Karen Ginzik, was the head over the St. Francis Women's Hospital. And we'd made plans with her. She said, whenever it happens, call my cell phone. I'll call the hospital. We'll have people waiting. It'll all be taken care of. Even that wasn't enough to put me at ease. And then in the middle of the night at two in the morning or whatever, when Sandy said, Phil, the baby's coming, we have to go to the hospital, that was not my plan. And so naturally I said to her, well, that can't be right. Uh, here I am telling a pregnant mom that apparently I know more about what's going on in her body than she does. This is the kind of genius I am. And so I argued with her at two in the morning go back to sleep. This can't be happening right now. This is not what we planned. Oh, and it was six weeks early, by the way. Sometimes plans don't go as we expect. But parents, especially expectant parents, are cautious and careful about trying to make sure they've put everything in place for the safe arrival of their child. I imagine if you and I had been given the assignment to plan the birth of the Savior of the world, we would have gone to great lengths to ensure that all the details of his birth were perfectly arranged. We'd make sure he was born into royalty, the finest of families. His parents would have been the king and queen of some great land. He'd have the best doctors in the delivery room, He'd spend his first night in a royal crib surrounded by the finest luxuries and the most attentive care. His birth announcement would be sent to all the major publications in the world and the most influential people on earth. There'd be parades. There'd be celebrations. Surely that's how we would have planned the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the greatest birth in all of history. Last Sunday, we talked about who that baby in the manger was. The Bible told us that he was none other than God with us. He was the Savior. He was the promised Messiah whose birth had been prophesied and eagerly anticipated for generations. That's who that baby was. But today, I want us to focus on how he came into the world and the reason that matters so much. It didn't happen at all like we would have anticipated or planned. And so let's pick up in a very familiar passage in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And let's read the first uh, seven verses, I believe. We'll, we'll kick off with that. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that 
all the world should be registered. Now, yours may say taxed. The word there in Greek literally means enrolled. Uh, it's the word for a census. Verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own city. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I want to say to you that none of those events that we've just read were in Joseph and Mary's plans. None of them. Just when it was about time for Mary to give birth, just when her family and friends had planned all the showers and the luncheons and everything was on the calendar, Caesar Augustus sends out this order that everyone has to travel to the hometown of their family and register for this census because Caesar wanted to make sure that he didn't miss any opportunity to squeeze every tax dollar out of every person in the known world. Now, Joseph and Mary lived in a small town called Nazareth. But all of a sudden, they were required by law to drop all of their plans to stop everything they were doing and travel to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's family line was from. Joseph was from the line of David of Bethlehem. Now, depending on which route they took, this was an 80 to 90 mile journey. So imagine walking from here to Columbia, South Carolina, but doing it over some mountainous terrain. Now, Imagine doing that when you're nine months pregnant. People still travel there to this day, by the, uh, by the way, and they walk this route to Bethlehem, from Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem. And there are a couple of ways that, that you can go. The probable way was the longer way because they would have probably gone around Samaria rather than going straight up to Bethlehem through Samaria as Jesus did when he met with the woman at the well. But most people would not have done that in those days. And so they went the longer route, which was not only longer, but it was more mountainous, it was more difficult, it was uh, more exhausting. So it was at least a four-day journey. That's if you were really moving. But for someone about to give birth, it would likely have been a journey of a week or more. Now this completely shattered Mary and Joseph's plans. It was not at all how they pictured things going. This was their two-in-the-morning moment that I had six weeks before the planned birth date when I was saying, this can't be happening, not now, this is not what we planned. And suddenly, they're making this journey, and they're miles from home, separated from all their friends, all their family, and maybe, I don't know, maybe there were moments because Mary and Joseph were human, despite what our Roman Catholic friends tell us, Mary was not divine, she was not sinless, because you can see, read in her own words when she referred to God as her savior. That's a message for another day. They were human just like us, and so perhaps there were moments during this long, exhausting journey 
being nine months pregnant, and then getting into the town of Bethlehem away from everyone they knew at just the moment when they wanted to be home with their family. Perhaps there were moments when they thought, why did Caesar have to do this dumb census now? Why now? This has messed up everything. But listen, what appeared to them as a breakdown of their plans was actually the perfect unfolding of God's plan. Because you see, centuries before, all the way back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God had already prophesied that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And there is Caesar Augustus, this man who proclaimed himself to be divine. He proclaimed himself to be the Son of God. As a matter of fact, I found a picture of some coins, there's lots of these available, where he actually put his name Augustus Divine. And he put it on coins, he put it on monuments, he had inscriptions made of it all over the place, and they've dug a, a bunch of these things up. Here's this arrogant man who was carrying out his selfish plan, convinced that he was controlling world events. But what Luke wants us to see is that this human ruler who thought he was so powerful was actually doing nothing more than being used by God to pave the way for the true king of kings and lord of lords to be born exactly where the scripture said he would be born. Although Caesar didn't know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would set in motion everything necessary for the savior of the world to be born in Bethlehem. See, Caesar thought that he was the king on the chessboard. Actually, he was just a pawn in the hands of God. Because we saw last week, when we looked at who that baby in the manger was, we saw that he was Lord over all rulers and kingdoms. What appeared to be a great show of Caesar's power proved to be a demonstration of the supremacy of God. And while Joseph and Mary thought they were just being, you know, helplessly swept up in the dictates of worldly power, God was actually using those very things to guide them to the exact place he needed them to be. Now, let's not miss the point of this. How often in our lives, when things don't go our way, do we say, Lord, why are you letting this happen? Lord, where are you in this? I don't see you at work in this, Lord. Things seem to be falling apart. What we must remember is that God is in control of all world leaders, all circumstances, all events. He's in control of our tragedies, our failures, our sorrows, our losses, our pains, our hurts, and he will work out his will to glorify his son. And I can tell you, 99% of the time, it will not pan out like you and I have planned. But God is working the events of not only our little lives, but world events, so that his son may be ultimately glorified through it all. He's just looking for people to trust him in the midst of it. So Mary and Joseph make the long journey. They arrive in Bethlehem, and they discover that the entire city is packed with all the other people 
who've had to come to Bethlehem to register, and so there was no place left for them to stay. And to make matters even worse, Mary went into labor. Now, I've never given birth. I know that may come as a shock. But I was once stuck in an international airport when I was violently sick. And it was not the best of airports. And all I wanted was a soft bed and a quiet place to lay down. But I didn't have time before my connecting flight out of the country to go and get a hotel room. I think I only had three hours or something like that. The airport was crammed with people. I still remember just the noise, the constant noise of people and the, the echoey paging that you hear in international airports. And it almost drove me mad. I was so sick. There was no place for me to turn, no place to rest. There were no open chairs. The best I could do was I went over and found a little spot up against a wall, just in the main concourse. And I laid down on the floor beside the wall and laid my head on my uh, hand luggage trying to find some ease in my misery. I was just sick. I wasn't about to give birth. So I can't imagine how horrible Mary must have felt as the baby starts coming and there's no place for her to lie down. Now, I'm not saying that this conversation took place, but I'm guessing Mary may have said something to Joseph like, you seriously didn't get online and book a room before we made this trip? Booking.com or none of that? You didn't do any of that before we came? And after a desperate search, the only place they can go is to an area out back where the animals are kept. Now, as I've said, our culture and centuries that have passed have really cleaned up the picture of the manger scene. Christmas cards are adorned with pretty pastel colors of this perfect, peaceful, clean area with baby Jesus lying in this perfect little manger that looks like it was custom made for him. And it's all neat and clean. And Mary and Joseph are there beside the crib with this serene look on their face. And some, for some reason, there's a beam of light coming down and illuminating the scene the animals are all standing, of course, at a safe distance from this helpless baby. They look like they've been taken to the groomers and all washed and trimmed and it's all just perfect and sterilized and sanitized. It's been made adorable. It's been made perfect. I think we've been desensitized to just how ugly and filthy and offensive and even dangerous the conditions of our Lord's birth really were. How did he come into the world? He didn't come into the world in a perfect little manger scene. This was not a clean, spacious barn. Animals in those days, in that part of the world, were often put in small caves for the night. This was very common. And if that was the case for Mary and Joseph, we don't know, but it would have been damp and musty. It would have been filled with bugs and spiders and who knows what else. If it wasn't a cave, then animals were put in a small pen outside to keep them from wandering off. Either way, Mary and Joseph found themselves in this dark, uncomfortable, unsanitary, uninviting area covered in animal droppings. Someone do a Christmas card of that, would you? 
and maybe do a scratch and sniff. It was not pleasant. I want us to get past the Christmas card image of Christmas. That's not how Jesus came. There, among the animals, surrounded by the pungent stench of manure, the Son of God was born into the lowliest of circumstances. And the manger he was laid in sounds so cute. There's a picture of it for you. But the word manger means feeding trough. And so it's highly probable that rather than the pictures we see on the Christmas cards, the place that baby Jesus was laid looked more like that. Again, this is never how you and I would have planned for this to happen. Surely we would have done everything to make sure that the precious Savior, the Lord of all creation, the Son of God, would not have had to come into the world this way. It's offensive, it's disturbing, it's unsettling, it's heartbreaking. But here's the jolt of reality that comes from Scripture. God had total control over the circumstances of his son's birth, and he chose for his son to come into the world this way. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that God was put behind the eight ball when Caesar Augustus issued this decree and threw everybody's plans out of whack. And now he's in heaven going, oh my goodness, there's no place for them to stay in Bethlehem. I did not see this coming. Listen, you and I try to plan every event in our life, especially the birth of a child, but we fall short of being able to do that. God, however, God had total control over the events of his son's birth, and he chose for his son to be born this way. Why? Why? Surely there's an answer to that. Well, there is, and we're going to come to that in just a minute, but first, I want to continue the story so we can pick up the rest of the picture. Luke continues in chapter 2, verse 8, with these words. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Let me just pause here real quick. Let's not miss that word sign there. This will be a sign for you. What? That the, the moon is going to turn red or the, some amazing miracle is going to happen. No, the sign was that his son would be found in a manger, in a stable, wrapped in strips of cloth. That's the sign. Verse 13, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Verse 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen this, 
They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, or marveled is another word. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's one of the greatest statements in the Bible to me. Don't you know? Don't you know she did? Verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You see, Jesus was not only born in a lowly place, but his birth was announced to lowly people. The proud religious scholars of the day thought for sure that the birth of the Messiah would be announced to them first. But God skipped right over the religious people. He bypassed all the powerful, influential people, and he chose instead to announce the birth of his son to unnamed shepherds out in a field. And while that's a comfortable and familiar part of the Christmas story to us by now, we must be careful not to miss what God is doing here. Shepherds who are not clean-cut, sharp-dressed professionals. They were rough, rugged, dirty, smelly people who lived outside with sheep for months at a time. Shepherds were not highly regarded by anyone. They were considered low class. In fact, they were so looked down upon that they were not even allowed to testify in a court of law because their testimony wasn't considered worth listening to. I know this is a cute little story to us, that the angel came and announced this to the shepherds, and we go, yeah, well, of course he did. In, in this day, this was a scandal. It would have been unthinkable to the religious elite that the birth of the Messiah would be announced first to shepherds. But God chose to announce the birth of his son to a group of people who were overlooked by everyone else. God appointed those whose testimony wasn't even valid in a court of law to be the ones to testify about his son's birth. Because that's how God does things. That's how God works. God doesn't need the strong or the brilliant or the powerful or the influential or the rich to accomplish his ends. He doesn't even need religious people to accomplish his plans. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 to 29 say this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he says these powerful words, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And then he says this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh or no man may glory in his presence. We'll see more of this next Sunday, that when Jesus came, he didn't come for the righteous, he came for sinners. He didn't come for the perfect, he came for the broken. He didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. 
And you and I should be really thankful for that because here's what that means. It means he came for us. He came for us. You see, how Jesus came speaks volumes about why Jesus came, which is what we're going to look at next Sunday. God chose to send his son into the lowliest, weakest, most humble, most rejected circumstances. And that doesn't just describe his birth. It also describes his entire life and it describes his death. At his coming, he was rejected. John chapter 1, verse 11. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. During his life, he was rejected. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And at his death, he was rejected. Mark 10, 34 says, they mocked him and spat on him and flogged him and killed him. We would never have scripted it this way. Oh, the wonder of how he came. It's not a very pretty Christmas story, but it's precisely because of how Jesus came that every one of us can find hope by being turned away at his birth, by being mocked and ridiculed during his life, and by dying a painful, humiliating death. He was giving an invitation to the rejected, the abused, the mistreated, the forgotten, the lonely, the brokenhearted, the overlooked, to come to him for salvation. He was opening the door to everyone. How he came showed us that the good news of the gospel wasn't just for the high and mighty. It was, as the angel said in verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, good news of great joy for all people. All people. See, listen, all religions of the world, all religions teach that we must somehow ascend to God in order to find salvation. Christianity alone shows us that God descended to us in order to bring us salvation. The wonder of Christmas is that the Lord of heaven humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant, became the lowliest among us, and sacrificed his life in order to show us the way to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This Christmas, I pray that our hearts will be renewed with the wonder of how Jesus came. I pray that we'll never lose sight of the power contained in not only who that baby in the manger was, but how he came. He left the splendor of heaven. He emptied himself. He took upon him the form of a servant. 
And he came and willingly died upon a cross to show all of us that he is one of us. And so that everyone who looks not only to his manger, but looks to his cross, everyone who repents of their sin and admits their need for a savior, everyone, all people can be saved from their sin. And we're going to look at that more next Sunday. The wonder of who that baby was, the wonder of how he came, and next week, the wonder of why he came. Hey, has Christmas become for you just a mad blur, just a rush to get the list done? Some people think, I just almost can't wait till this is over. We're all impacted by that in, in one way or another, to one degree or another. But man, wouldn't it be great if this year we could all pause long enough to remind ourselves that the God of heaven humbled himself, was born into the lowliest of circumstances, into the lowliest of families, surrounded by the lowliest of people, spent his life not with the religious elite, not with the politically powerful and influential, but with the down and out, with the drunkards and the prostitutes, and the thieves, and the beggars. I hope that that image of how he came will impact our Christmas this year and every year. And that we'll pause every Christmas season and throughout the year to remember and to give him thanks that he became one of us to bring salvation to all of us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.